wrap up, we had the, the first couple of chapters, the first two chapters we talked about, that's the, the introduction. We talked about how the, the uh, original sin, excuse the expression, the original sin of the time of the Shoftim was the leaving of the Canaanim, not getting rid of all the Canaanim. And then we have the, the progression of the, the Shoftim, one after another in their stories. And the last five chapters, which we're summing up now, are really the, the symbols of the decline of the society at that time and the, the problems that came up because of the, the original sin in chapters one and two. And when we started chapter 17 with the Pesalmicha, Pesalmicha had chapter 17, we saw the, the kind of ironic and satirical story of Micha, whose you know, confusion about service of God led to some corruption. You know, he steals from his mother and he builds the, the Pesel. And eventually, chapter 18, we have a whole tribe going astray. We have this Levi, who's actually the grandson of Moshe. We have the, the opportunism that characterizes him when he decides that he's going to be, he's going to be a, a Kohen. Micha says, you could be my Kohen, and he becomes a Kohen. And then the whole tribe of Dan becomes, uh, you know, involved in the Pesel Micha. And there's a certain um, satire to that story, which could be like sort of, you know, it's not exactly funny that the Jewish people are are going off and serving idols, but it, there's a certain humor to it. When we started chapter 19, the horrible story of the rape and essentially murder of the Pelegesh in the time of Giba, and we went on to chapter 20, which just escalated this atrocity into an absolutely horrific civil war, where 40,000 were killed from the 11 tribes, and 25,000 from Binyamin and more. So it became from a, a tragedy and, and, and in, 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 on an individual level to a national tragedy of civil war. So now we have the end of that story and the end of this whole um, dark period. And there's some strange developments that happen in chapter 21. But we see, we see the same problems that we've seen before. We see confusion about the relationship to God. You see tribal loyalties um, trumping national loyalties. We've seen a general ignorance of uh, how things should work. And most of all, we've seen a tremendous lack of leadership. And the lack of leadership is, you know, emphasized by this phrase, by Amim HaHem and Melech Yisrael. This phrase goes through these stories it's in chapter 17, chapter 18. And again, we see it um, at the story of Pelegish Begiva. And this is going to be the signature Pasuk that ends Sefer Shoftim. So we have to really pay attention to something that's repeated so many times. 
And that's really, really a problem that we see here. By Israel, there was no king in Israel. So um, we can really um, speculate what would be, you know, the ideal form of government. What would be the best way, you know, to how do, how should we do this? But it always seems that we come back to the same um, conclusion that there's no leadership and there's no, uh, there's no hand that's guiding the wheel. So, you know, the, uh, the boat goes any which way, the, the, the ship gets lost because there's nobody steering. And we see this again and again. I, I would point out also that the story of Ruth, which we're gonna get to um, Shavu's time, which will be Shavu's time, is also a Shoftim story. And it's also a result of a Melech Yisrael. Okay, so that's a general summation. Let's let's take a look at this last chapter. I'll do some screen share. Okay. There we go. Can you see this? All right. So Shoftim Chaf Aleph is not as long as Chaf. It's 25 took it long. And there's a few general sections. The first section being the, the Jewish people waking up to the almost extinction of an entire tribe. Um, this next section, I would call it from, uh, from Hay to Yudbet, is the first attempt at solving this problem, which um, has its own complexities and difficulties, like more death. <laughs> and then from Yud Gimel, Right, uh, Yud Gimel to Yud Chet, they implement this solution, and from Yud Tet, basically till Chafet, there's like this section is they're very very creative, and and here we have an element that's also uh, not as horrific, um, a little strange, and we're going to try to um, not not get hung up on it, but it's also has its strange elements, but it also, you know, does sort of have its, shall we say, ironic and uh, humorous bits. And then we end with our So, let's go here. We have to maybe scroll back a little bit to see where we, we left off, okay? Um, at the end of chapter 20, right, those who fell from Binyamin, 25,000 men who, who were in the army, and they turned and they ran to the desert to the Sela Rimon, right, which was in the desert of Yehuda. 600 men, and they sat in the Sela Rimon for four months. The remnants of, of um, Sheba Binyamin. The Ish Israel, this is the last Pasuk in chapter 20, and the man of Israel returned to the Bnei Binyamin, and they struck them by the sword from the cities, people, animals, everything that was there, all the cities were burnt up in the fire. So somehow, right, it, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. There is something going on here that's beyond the punishment of the Bnei Binyamin, so that 
they turned around and they wiped out their cities. And you know, this is kind of horrible. Like, it isn't enough to punish the men. So why is that going on? But okay, four months go by and the 600 men that are left of Binyamin, right? Hashem's mercy, they're hiding out in the desert. And then chapter 21, Perkhapala, Pasagala, the Ish Israel Nishbaba Mitzpolemor, now we have a problem. Okay. We have the, um, and this, the way this set up, it sounds like they're making a new oath, but it seems from the Mepharshim, the language also, by the way, for those of you who went through my class, I always tell you that when you have something like Vayavo, and you have the future with a, um, the above, the converse above, that is the simple past. When you have simple past, that's what we call in English past perfect. They had taken a vow, and the Mepharshim uh, speak this out, at Mitzvah. When they originally gathered, the 400,000 strong gathered to punish this iniquity, they made a vow that none of us will give our daughter to Binyamin for a wife. All right, that happened earlier. But now, Pasik Bet, now we're going to the current times. The B'nai Israel wake up all of a sudden to the enormity of what had happened. And they go to Beit El, right? Which you see here, Mitsuda says, Beit Elokim I want to just take a minute and talk about this. The house of God was in Shiloh. That's where the Mishkan was. The Shiloh is not mentioned much. It's mentioned at the end of Pesamicha. It isn't mentioned much. And you see from the fact that the, the idol of Micha had such traction, there could have been other shrines and other pagan worships going on. So you might say that Shiloh was basically ignored during the time of the Shoftim. But the, the Radak, the Mitsudas, many, many of the Mepharsh have come forward and say, no, whenever it says Beit El in this story, the reference is to Shiloh. And there's a, you know, a um, proof to, to truth of that at the end of the parrot where Shiloh is referenced. So that seems to be Beit El means the house of God. So they're really referring to Shiloh. Well, they come back there and that makes a certain amount of sense because that's really right now the, the the tribes are in a state of shock. Like what on earth has happened here? And they come back, because now they're coming to Hashem finally and saying, what's going on here? How do we deal with this? This is horrible. And they raise their voices and they cry. A great, great mourning happens. Plus a given by Yomu. Lama Hashem Israel, Israel, and they said, why, Hashem, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that we have lost a whole Shevet? A whole Shevet is missing. And on the next day, they got up early and they made an altar and they raised up on their Olot and Shlomim. So that altar is a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, What's the point? If they're in Shiloh, so do they need another altar? 
that's not so clear. Or perhaps they, they feel that, you know, the labor of making the altar, the, the, the carbonate that they put on it, the crying, this is, of course, what we think of as the first step in tshuva, right? They're just full of remorse, full of repentance, horrified at what's happened. And the Mephoshim work on this in, in, in different ways, you know, what, what's, what's, the, what's the sense of the remorse? But what you have to look at here is, right, when, when they made this vow, why did they make this vow, you know? And the, the Mitsuda says here, al ki hechziku avera. They helped a person who was sinning. And I think that's probably our first life lesson. It is forbidden to help someone do an avera. The Rambam talks about it explicitly, right? Machzik yidei ovei avera. The people of Binyamin. And, and the, das, the Das Mikra has a sort of, I find this a very, very um, insightful comment. The Das Mikra, in the introduction to the story, says, one of the things we talked about was the evil influences of the pagan nations that infiltrated into the Jewish people. And the idea of the Pesalmicha, I'm sorry, of the Pelegish Begiba, that's, that's beyond, you know, bizarre, you know, pagan worship, that's an absolute moral outrage that they took from evil custom, from evil places like stone. And what the Das Mikra says is that although there was not everybody doing this thing, even in Giba, it wasn't like everybody was part of it as we saw, we, we talked about this in, in Paragid Test, we talked about this in Paragid it wasn't across the board, all of Giba was involved. And, it certainly wasn't all of Binyamin, but you know the way he puts it, I like the expression very much. He said, And here's something that we have to think about. The Dasmikra says they lost their sensitivity to the evil. And they decided to take tribal loyalty over national loyalty. That, that element we've spoken about before. They stuck with their own people. But when he says their sensitivity to the evil was dulled. And I think it's a really important thing that the, the Chazal talk about in the, uh, the case of the Sota. That if a person sees a Sota, he should, he should make himself a Nazir. There's a concept of seeing or even hearing about evil things, something that we should really, really bear in mind because we live in a culture where you can see everything all the time, just at the flip of your phone. And we should be very, very conscious, I include myself in this for all of us, that what we see has an influence on us. And even if the influence is just not being sensitive, now, I'll, I'll go off topic a little bit and tell you a story that <laughs> um, my husband told me when we were engaged, he used to tell me a lot of Musser stories, that's how he entertained me, <laughs> that um, Yitzhak Blaser, who was known in Itzel Petterberg, when he went to 
um, St. Petersburg from Lithuania. He went to the big city in Russia to become the rabbi there. He saw Chil Shabbos for the first time. He'd never seen anyone desecrate Shabbos and he fainted dead away. And I remember when my husband told me the story, I was like, what are you talking about? And, uh, you know, she's not on the Zoom, so I could talk about her. Um, my daughter, Ruthie, when she was about five, we walked out of, we were living in Matasdorf where there were no Philip Shabbos. We walked up the hill to where they were, there was, and she saw a man getting into a car on Shabbos, and she yelled at him, Asrulin Hogu Shabbat! She was horrified, and he just ignored her and drove away. And she was so upset. And I remember saying, now I understand Rabbi If you never see it, if you never feel it, it's not, it's not possible. How could someone do this? And that's why the 11 tribes were like, what? There was a gang rape in Giva? They murdered someone? They could not get over it. But the B'nai B'nyamin were dull. Their sensitivities were dulled. I think that the Das Mikra is very correct here. They were like, okay, so, you know, leave us alone. The, the other Farshim talk about, you know, the B'nai B'nyamin in the sense that, you know, they really should have been the ones to deal with the problem. That the, the Jewish people should not have said, you know, give us the people, we'll deal with them. But they should have said, you take those people and deal with them. So they really put their backs up. But however we understand it, right, the anger and the rage of the, the whole claw against the B'nai B'nyamin was so great that they put them into an what was essentially a cherem. We don't want to intermarry with you. We don't want to have our women, our daughters marry you guys. You guys have messed up royally. And that's why this vow was made. And all of a sudden, right, they came to this point where they had, at the end of chapter 20, we saw they wiped out, they wiped out the whole tribe, men, women, and children, and there's only 600 men left. And what are we going to do now? So all of a sudden, you know, sobriety returns, you know, the civil war, I think that in, in America, like it, it tore families apart, it tore people apart. You turn around and you say, well, these are my brothers. How could this have happened? How could we have done this? How could such a thing happen? And they come to God and they say, we're just broken. And they cry and they cry and they say, what do we do now? And they dive into Hashem. And now they have to look forward. How do we solve this problem? So their solution is, <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll look at it. All right. So the first thing we have to say is, um, okay, what, what, who, maybe someone didn't make the vow. Maybe someone didn't come up on that day, right? So, because the great vow was at that time, anyone who doesn't come with us to war to punish Benyamin, he will be put to death. 
So now they're saying, you know, maybe someone wasn't part of that. And they're like crying in sorrow and remorse. Like, what's going on here? Uh, what, what, have we, what has happened here? Now, I want to point out here that in Pasuk Gimel, they say something that we really should pay attention to. Pasuk Gimel, they say, Why did this happen, Hashem? Right? And here, this is a Pasuk I'm very fond of from Sefer Mishlei. Perak Yudet Pasuk Gimel. Ivelet Adam Tisalef Darko. The foolishness of man perverts his way, and then he gets angry at God. <laughs> and we see this, right? We see this, right? What happens in Bracious with the brothers, right? Um, here. When they find the money put back in their packages from Yosef, what has God done to us? It's such a classic human reaction. Why did you do this to me, God? Well, maybe we should have some introspection here. Maybe you did it, you sinned, and God punished you. So they're like saying, well, why did this happen? Now, the question is, and, and, and this is how we can we can try to understand that we have to first of all take responsibility. We can't say, God, why did you do this to me? So what did I do to contribute to this? But there's also the thought that um, losing forty thousand men was a very serious was a very serious consequence of whatever happened. So now they're trying to figure out why did why did Hashem do that? We 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 punished Benjamin, but we lost twice first. So what was the reason that we lost twice before we were able to punish them, right? And, and the Malbim says, they, they looked into themselves and they said, the real truth is that if we had lost twice and lost 40,000 men, maybe we wouldn't have become enraged and wiped out Benjamin. We would have just punished the people who needed to be punished. So perhaps the defeats that God gave them, they're saying to themselves, perhaps the defeats that happen are what caused them to wipe out Benjamin, which is putting them in this position. And so they now wish, why did God do that to us? And now they have to look in themselves. They said, well, what happened? Now, the Malbim makes another very interesting comparison. The Malbim says, remember back in Yeshua, when the people fought the city of Ai and 36 people died. And Yeshua is like, what happened? How could this happen? And Hashem says, well, you know, this they sinned, they sinned. And it turned out that Achan had stolen from the Chayim of Yericho, and that's why they lost. So if that's the case, the Bnei Israel, the Malibuses are making a comparison and saying, perhaps because someone didn't participate, someone stayed out of our oath, and that's why we lost. So they say, okay, who, who didn't do that? Perhaps, perhaps they're, they're the problem. Perhaps that's why 
we have to uh, deal with that. Okay. So then they say, Pasuk Bav, right? We cannot have, we can't lose a Shebet. This is a whole discussion which we don't have so much time for, but it seems as if uh, the Gemara talks about that Yaakov's legacy was to have 12 tribes. And how can it be? We have 600 men and they're going, you know, uh, today the word is extinct. You know, Binyamin is going to become extinct because we all swore not to give them our daughters. And there's no Binyamin girls left. So what is going to happen? How could this be? How could we lose Nigda? How could we cut off a tribe from Israel? Pasuk Zion. Mana selahem lanotarim lanashim. How can we find these remaining people, uh, wives? Because we swore that we won't give them our daughters for wives. Maybe there is someone who didn't make this vow. Nobody came from Yavish Killer, excuse me. Okay, let's show you love Yavish Gilad. Okay, here's Yavish Gilad. It's on the east bank of the river of the Jordan, and it's here if you see. This area is called Gilad. And this seems to be, I'm uh, making a guess here because nobody actually discusses what tribe they're from. And I, I really found this very strange, I want to say. I looked through all the Farshim. Nobody says, are Yavish Gilad from this tribe or not? So based on this map, it looks like they were from Menachem. And they're over the Jordan and they, they're not coming. They're not coming. And the question is, what, what do the Bnei Israel want to do about that? And they said, let's check it out. Absolutely not one person came from Yavish Gilad. Now that they checked it out, um, and they're like, okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? So, uh, you know, we have a certain principle in Avos, right? You're not allowed to separate yourself from the community. And here you have a town that says, we're not coming. We're not coming. And they don't, uh, I mean, you'll find later in, in Sefer Shmuel, we'll, we'll talk about it, we get back to this town in chapter 11. These are people who don't want to be bothered, basically. They really just want to be left alone. They're not, they're not joining. And the question is, what do we do in that situation? Right. Go to Yavish Gilad and wipe them all out. Right? Right? But any unmarried girl, any virgin, don't kill her, because we need girls for our Bnei Binyamin. Pasuk Yibet. Vayimtzu miyoshva yavish gilad arba maot naara betula shemoyata ish v'mishkav zachar vayaviyotam elamach neshilo asher be'eretz knan. Here I mentioned to you that we had a proof 
that Beit's ale that's referred is Shiloh because they brought them to the camp at Shiloh. So that is actually a proof that um, Radak, Mansuda said, and all these people are correct that um, here. Radak says, yes, that's proof that when it's referring to Beit El, we mean Shiloh. So what do they do? And here's like, you know, you didn't think, it, you thought it could, could not get any worse. We already lost 40,000 of the 11 tribes, 25,000 of Yemen, and now we're going to go wipe out Yavish Gilad, except for the girls that we need, that we're left 400 girls for our 600 B'nai Yemen. Why were Yavish Gilad deserving of the death penalty? So in order to understand this, first of all, I refer you back to here where it said, hey, they made a vow that whoever doesn't come will be put to death. Now, the, this is the Pasuk in Vayikra that this is based on, okay? This is the last bit of Vayikra. And at the end of Vayikra, right? Um, Any ban that is banned of people can never be redeemed. They must die. Okay, now the Ramban, this is a very, very famous Ramban. So I'm just going to uh, show it to you, right? Ramban on that Pasuk in Vayikra says, okay, if you will do, uh, the reason for this is that the intention of those making such a vow is not that the captives be given to the priests, but rather be forbidden to derive any benefit from them since their purpose is to destroy the enemies. Thus, we find in the case of the men of Yavish Gilad, who transgressed the oath of the assembly when not coming to mitzvah to take part in the battle against Giva for the outrage they'd committed, that is written, the congregation sent to the 10,000 men, actually, I think it's 12,000, of the valiants, just commanded them, saying, go, one second, I never really, that's disturbing to me. It was 12,000, there's a misprint here. They sent 12,000 men and said, kill them by the sword. Common sense does not allow us to say that the whole congregation perpetrated such an evil deed, killing many people of Israel not guilty of death. And Pinchas was there. And by the word of his mouth, the whole of it was done. I further found that Rabbi Akiva says, right, cherem is an oath and an oath is a cherem. So they took an oath and the oath was a cherem. And the men of Yavesh transgressed the cherem and they became liable to the death of penalty. And therefore I say that it was from this verse that they deduced this law, that if a king in Israel or a Sanhedrin in the presence of Israel have the authority to institute ordinances if they declare a city cherem, he who, he who violates it is liable to the death penalty and that was the guilt of the men of Yavish Gilad. Let's go back to our psukim. Okay, I, I actually wanted to make a comment on this because we have a very important principle that's being brought out here. That's, you know, the Ramban is saying that halachically they made, because there were 400,000 of them with all the leaders, with all the people there, what they said was binding in all of Klai Israel. And if anyone says we're not doing that, we're against this, we're not doing this, then they're liable to the death penalty. This seems very, very harsh, but I do want to point out, and I'm going on a limb here, you know, out on a limb here, that in a um, state 
or society or a kalal. If you have everyone deciding whatever they want, then you have chaos. And, you know, you don't have to go too far to find examples of how problematic this can be because we're living this right now in Israel. We're living this right now. You have a situation, what they call in Israel, sarvanut, refusers, refusers. I don't like what you want the army to do, so I'm not gonna go to the army. I'm not gonna do my middle. I don't like what the government's doing, so I'm gonna sabotage the government. I'm gonna pull my money out, tell everyone else to pull their money out. I don't have to go into detail about this. Right, Daila Hakima Bermiza. It's not sustainable to have a klal where everybody One of the great lessons we get from Shoftim is it can't be that every faction, every group says, Well, I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. I don't care about you guys. There has to be an ethic of the klal. And obviously, we're talking about proper ethics proper leaders, you know, righteous people, but you see that this separatism is very, very dangerous because anytime there's another word, Devorah complains about it back in chapter five in her song, where were you when we needed you? Why did this tribe not come? How could each tribe say, well, I'm living in my own little land and I'm doing my own little thing and I don't need you and I don't care about you. The Kalal has to you know, work together, you know, uh, the old saying of uh, Abraham Lincoln, united we stand, divided we fall. And we don't like everything that the government does, and we don't like all the rules. But if we don't stick with, with our leadership and our claw, we have chaos. Okay. Prosecute Gimo. So they have these 400 girls from Yavesh Gila, they saved for the brides for these guys, and they and they sent messengers to B'nai B'nyamin at, that are hiding out in the desert for four months. And they say, we want to make peace. We're not going to hurt you. Come. And they gave them the wives, right? Um, the 400 girls. And they came and they didn't find enough. Like, we only have 400 girls and there's 600 men. So you do the math. We have 200 men who simply can't get married. <coughs> In Judaism, you know, everybody's got to worry about making Shadokim. That's another life lesson for us. If you see single people, see if you can help them. That's a very uh, good thing, right? And... Um, <clears throat> The nation relented, felt pity for Binyamin because Hashem had made a split in the tribes of Israel. So we have actually keep coming back to their feeling bad. They keep feeling bad or feeling bad. And the Malvin makes a distinction here. Before we were talking about B'nai um, Israel. Right. And here the Malam says, we're talking about the leadership, the, the general. Oh, they felt bad. But now it's Ha'am. 
it's the amcha, it's everybody. They're like, this is horrible. God has split our, our, our tribes and we need to, you know, deal with this. What am I going to do for these guys for wives? Because the Binyamin, there's no Binyamin women left. Right? And they said, a inheritance of survival of Binyamin and a tribe shall not be wiped out from Israel. This is an extremely problematic pasuk and um, very difficult to interpret. So Rashi says, um, the, the land is empty. Let's find how we can fill it up, right? And we have that thought, but um, maybe there's something else here, right? Um, there's 600 men, right? We have 400 that can be married, and therefore we do have a Yerushat Plata. They will not become extinct, right? So it's okay. It could be that they're saying, well, you know, it's all right. But that seems to be a strange response here. Um, we still have, we're not going to wipe out the tribe because we have 400 that get married. But the Das Mikra says, an interesting thought, we are not going to settle their land. We're going to leave it for them. Although Binyamin had a, you know, their own Yerusha. No one could live there until the Binyamin people managed to repopulate and resettle, which I think is a, a nice story here. It's very difficult, right? The Malbim, again, has another take on this. He says, well, maybe we can get annul the vow. You know, the way you annul vows is to say, if I had known X, I wouldn't have made the vow. So the Malbim says, perhaps the people were saying, Yerushat Plato Binyamin. We didn't know, right? We, that Binyamin, go back here to Tetzayin. We didn't know that Binyamin were going to lose all their women. We didn't know that that would happen. And if we had known that, we never would have vowed never to give them our girls. So the, the answer to that is Yerushat Plato Binyamin. You can't annul the vow on that basis because we already have found 400 wives for them. So there's not going to be a problem that's saying, oh, we didn't know. So there we are with our problem. And they say, well, what are we going to do? Right? Because we want these guys to get married. And if you think this is something new, that's a Jewish vibe. You got to make Shaduchim. I once heard Rebetzin Young Rice speak. Um, she was amazing. And the basic message beyond all the wonderful stories she told was right after 9-11. She said, make Shaduchim. Get involved. Everybody should get involved in making Shaduchim. So you see this is a Jewish thing from time immemorial. Why? What are we going to do with these Binyamin guys? They have to get married. So, you know, Jews always have creative solutions to things, and that's what they came up with, Pasikitet. Right? I just want to say, as, a, as one of our life lessons, 
don't make vows. They come out so bad in the Tanakh. If you remember Yiftach and his vow, right? There's a reason we all run around going, Blineder, Blineder, Blineder. It's a reason we say, Kol Nidre, first thing on Yom Kippur. Don't swear. It's a bad idea. And if something comes out of your mouth, if you're a promise, throw around those Blineders. Bad idea. It's a very uh, serious thing going on with all these oaths. So they come up with a brilliant plan. There is a festival in Shiloh from time to time. Now, Yamim Yamima could either be from year to year or from festival to festival. And we actually, this is a hint to the next Sefer, to um, Elkanah, the father of Shmuel, who went to Shiloh, Miyamim Yamima, right? And now we have a very strange little interlude. Asher mitzvot el. This place is north of Beit El. Mizracha Shemesh, east of the Mesila Lami Beit El Shema, east of the path that goes from Beit El to Shem. Uminegev Levona, and south of Levona. And it's like a very um, exact kind of, you know directions to Shiloh. So how is that even working? Because aren't they in Shiloh? So the Radak says, well, it's directions to the festival, which is not actually in Shiloh, but in the vineyards near Shiloh. So that's uh, one way of trying to understand it, but it is actually very bizarre. The Dasmikra says, well, these directions were put in by Shmuel because, you know, when at the time that Shmuel wrote the Sefer, Shiloh was gone and people didn't know where it was. But it's a very, very strange phrase. All of a sudden you get directions. This is your ways speaking. You know, <laughs> go straight ahead. And what are they doing here? Go and the word ma'rav means an ambush. Like hide yourselves in the vineyards. This is the plan, okay? Um, and you'll see. You're going to see that the girls of Shiloh are going to come out to dance. This is the festival. The girls come out. Um, uh, there's this festival for Hashem. They come out dancing in the vineyards near Shiloh. And you're going to hide. They tell these 200 guys, you're going to hide. And when the girls come out dancing, right, you'll go out and them. you'll grab. Like in modern Hebrew, chatif is a snack, something you grab. Ishmael will grab his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go back to Binyamin. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is weird. It's a little bizarre. And it will be that when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, another strange pasuk. Yeah, but when they come to complain, so the word Rashi says, um, in other words, that the, the, the people of Binyamin are going back to Binyamin. 
So where's our map, right? Here we are in Shiloh, here's Shiloh. Binyamin's territory is like south there. This is Beit El, right? And here's Shiloh, not far from each other. Grab your Shiloh girl and go home. And when they come to complain to us, we will say, we had Rahmanis on them because we didn't, they didn't take their wives in the war of Yavish Gilad. In other words, they didn't have enough girls from Yavish Gilad. And, and you don't have to worry about your oath. You didn't give your daughters. They took them. Don't feel you're going to be blamed for it because you weren't. And this is where you need your Talmudic thumb. You didn't give them your daughters because you vowed not to give them your daughters. They took them. Okay. There's something very ironic here about this story because here we are. What's the original complaint? Why does this whole thing happen? Because they're protesting the violent uh, abuse of a woman. Right? So now we're just like, we're having women. We take the 400 from Yavish Gilad. We take the 200 dancers. Grab a, grab a girl. The dancing dozens. <laughs> the lively ladies of Shiloh. Have your, you know, swing your partner. It's actually, there is a humor here. The Dasofrim doesn't want you to get concerned. The Dasofrim says, don't worry. No girl was married without her consent. No girl was married without her consent. I'll give you um, a medrash, where is it, that Rashi brings in Shmuel, which is really one of my favorites, actually. I find it, oh, maybe he should hear. Uh, no, which is here. Here. Oh, dear. Okay, so Yonatan is defending David, and um, Shaul gets angry at him. And Shaul, Pasikilam, the Ere, Harav Shaul, the Yonatan, the Yomolo, Ben Navata Mardut. Basically, what's happening is that Shaul is angry with Yonatan. If you are supporting David, you're not my son. If you're not my son, that means your mother was fooling around, right? If your mother was fooling around, she's a perverse and rebellious woman, okay? So therefore, when Shaul is um, yelling at uh reprimanding Yonatan in this harsh way, it reflects on Shaul's wife. So Rashi brings this, Na'avat ha-mardut. Na, um, Rashi says, Na'avat from Isha Na'avinada, like a Na'avinad, a wandering woman. And then he says, Mardut is rebellion. Your mother is a perverse um, and a, a straying and rebellious woman. And you're embarrassing her by you 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 you're making it look like you're not my son. And he brings an interesting medish here, right? Kishet chatfu Okay, when those binyamin guys grabbed their girls in Shiloh, sheyatula who went out to dance in the vineyards, hayas shaul b'shan. Shaul was always very shy. On the other hand, we go if you remember your shaul 
in uh, chapter nine, when we first meet him, he's very handsome, very tall, very eligible. Shaul was by shot, lower tzalachtof. He's standing there and he's like, no, no, I can't go grab a girl like that. Not my type. So she came by herself and she very boldly ran after him. I always find this an extremely funny medrash. And I'm sorry to say that Rashi doesn't source it. So I'm not sure where that comes from, but I trust Rashi. And um, you, you see, going back to our story, that there is this whole thought, you know, don't, don't get, don't get like, I, you know, I, you can get hung up thinking they're grabbing girls and this is not Peseder. It's not so simple, right? The girls had to agree and it was not um, a coercive situation. And the Malbim also talks about this, by the way, not, not, um, not just a dust so for him. The Malbim says, right, um, There was kedushin on the uh, the knowledge and and approval of the woman. So I feel like even though Yitzhak and Chaf and even Chaf Aleph have some very dreadful thoughts, the thoughts of wiping out Yavish Gilad is very disturbing, and uh, the whole story is very disturbing. I, I feel like this story kind of you know gives us a little bit of a a tiny bit of a lighter note, and especially that Jewish thumb, like you didn't give your daughters, they took your daughters, which always amuses me. Okay, Vasikov Gimel. The, you have to pay attention though to the language here. It's a little bit warlike, because it says, ambush in the fields, grab, and then it says here, the girls asher gazalu, the ones they stole. So there's a little bit of a undertone of this was not so nice. And they took these girls and they found that each one found the wife and they returned to their nachla and they built their cities. So in a sense, the B'nai B'nyamin have a sort of happy after, ever after. But I want to show you what it says in the Gemara. Very famous Gemara. Amar Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. Lo ayu yomim tovim Yisrael ka'chamishasar ba'ab yom ha'kippurim. Right? There were two great days in Israel, Yom Kippur and the 15th day of Av, right? Why Yom Kippur? These basically chamechil, yet forgiven, right? El chamisha sabav, by he, what's the 15th of Av? Amrav Yehuda Mashmur, Yom Shahutu Shvata Ravoze Bazet. That was the day when the tribes were permitted to intermarry. Majrush, right? I'm talking about the, the Tzlavcha that weren't allowed to intermarry, but after them they were allowed. Amr of Yosef, Amr of Nachman. They made the vow that this, this was only for this generation, this would never happen again, but on the day that they were allowed to marry, that was the 15th day of Av. And that was considered a very, very great day in Israel. Something that we, right, today became like a sort of 
Israeli Valentine's Day, but it is a great day. And, you know, I do know that in recent years, they've, they've had like singing and dancing festivals in Shiloh on Tuba Av, which is really very sweet. Okay. So they go and they take the girls. And the children of Israel at that time went each man to their tribe and to their families. And they went from there, each man to their inheritance. And you see here, this is actually a summation, but it's kind of a sad summation, I have to say, because the Malvin points out, wait a second, everyone's going back to their tribal, you know, they didn't they like hop that they have to prevent these things from happening again. They have to join together as a clown and not be, you know, a, a bunch of, you know, uh, tribes that are, you know, separated and, and independent of each other. How has that, uh, how has that happened? The Malbim says, didn't, didn't they learn anything? And we end off with and there we have it. There was no king in Israel. Every man did what was straight in his own eyes. And that is really the message that we take away that when there is no leadership, then everyone can do what they think is best. And this is going to be a very, very big problem. So when we take the safer, you know, as a whole, we see in each story, we see this kind of, you know, problems, you know, tribal loyalties, trumping national loyalties. We see like the vacuums of leadership. We, we've seen some amazing leaders in Sefer Shoftim. We see Devorah, who is beloved and chosen by everybody. We see Atniel, this great Tavachacham. We see Gidon, they say, Gidon, be our king. He's so wise. He, he handles the, 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 the klal so well. But somehow the idea of making you know, a king does not, does not come through. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu was not a king, Yoshua was not a king, but their leadership was unquestioned. And you know, if you call it a king or if you call it a, a judge, there still has to be that kind of, you know, authority. And when there is no authority, we have these problems. Again, the, the king is always a key word because in Melch Israel is always, Hashem is our Mela. We have to have Hashem as our king, as Hashem as our guide. The, uh, the Barbara talks about the differences between the institution of a judge and the institution of a king. And we see that when, when we come to the next Sefer, we meet Shmuel. And Shmuel is the one who ushers in the era of the kings. And Shmuel himself is a tremendous leader. He's a tremendous um, figure for our history. He was able to do, <coughs> to write the problems of the time of the Shoftim. Although his leadership was limited in time, but he was a person who everybody trusted, everybody loved, and his authority was unquestioned. He was able to rid the people of the Avodzara, and he was able to unite everyone. And um, when we get to the 
the king Shaul and David, we start seeing that there is a type of king that we, we want, just as there were type of judges that we want. And interestingly enough, the institution of king is not a perfect situation. But when we see this, we have to stop and say, this is the message of Sefer Shoptim. The message is, right, we need our leaders to guide us in the way of Hashem. We need to follow our leaders. And we need to know that Akash Baruch Hu is the ultimate leader. And that's, um, that's basically the messer. So chazak, chazak, l'chaim. I'll stop the screen share. Probably have lots of questions. Okay. There we go. All righty. And a little bit of chocolate. I think I left the square. <laughs> a little bit. Well, anyway. I had two squares. Yeah, I, 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 I realized. I, I think we I, might be related. <laughs> could be, could be. Okay, so. Um, I didn't want to start, say, for Shmuel, but, you know, when we have just one week and then we have Pesach and all this, mm-hmm. so I figured that we should um, have next week a uh, kind of pre-Pesach shear. I'm, um, I'm working on it, trying to, uh, uh, trying to find some sort of appropriate pre-Pesach message. And that's what's going to happen next week. And then we'll take a break. I forget the date when we start again. I think the 25th of April, we have a pretty long break. And then we're going to start Shmuel, which, um, yeah, Shmuel is great. The, the end of Shoftim is kind of tough, especially chapters 1920. Very disturbing. But um, Shmuel is great. And I think that uh, there's so much that we learn from the different stories in Shoftim. There's so much that we can learn, so much we can take out of it, even though some of it is really rough. Wow. I, I, I unfortunately got a little political tonight, sorry. <laughs> but it, it struck me so, it struck me so much that, you know, people who are refusing to go to the army are really like, that's, that's what Yavash Gilad was doing. We're like, we're not doing this. We'll do what we want, just separatists. And um, kind of can't run a nation like that. It's problematic because everybody could say that at any time. So forgive me for taking a political turn there. Right, not taking any side in the controversy. I'm just saying that, you know, putting aside, um, national loyalty and um, the good of the the cloud is a very problematic thing to me. 